Good morning, family. It is so good to see all of your smiling faces. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Ryan. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Awaken. And today I've got the blessing of uh, preaching from the Word of God in Mark chapter 5 as we continue in our series called The Divine Interruptions. And for those of you who haven't been with us over the last few weeks, what we've been trying to do, aiming to do with this series is to look to the divine interruptions in the life and ministry of Jesus to help us better understand the divine interruptions that happen in our own lives. And so far what we've done is we spent a lot of time looking at the, the type of interruptions that we typically try to avoid. Those ones that take us out of our comfort zone, right? The ones that take away our control. Or as we looked at last week, even some of those that turn our view of God's kingdom upside down. But as we enter into the last couple of weeks of this series, we're going to shift our focus away from those interruptions that are often unpleasant or unwelcome and shift them towards those interruptions that we actually kind of desire. I'm not sure if you guys know this, but there are actually interruptions that we desire, the ones that we actually crave, that we want. Let me give you a couple of lighthearted examples. I'm going to look over to my students over here because we all know when that fire drill goes off during chemistry class, that is a welcome interruption, right? Am I alone in that? Come on, guys. Or if you're in, like, in the middle of a workout, right, and you get a water break, nobody's mad about that kind of interruption. Let's go a little bit deeper, though. How about an interruption to a sickness? An interruption to an addiction? Or an interruption to the wandering path of a prodigal child? See, some interruptions we actually desire. Some interruptions we'll actually pray for. Some interruptions we might actually go and pursue ourselves. These aren't the ones that pull us out of our comfort zone, but they're the ones that speak to our pain, that speak to our need, that speak to our despair. These are those divine interruptions that bring us hope and bring us healing. So what I want to ask you to do this morning before we dive into God's word is just to broaden your perspective a bit on divine interruptions. Not just those ones that are unwelcome or unwanted, but the ones that we actually crave. Because here's the deal. Jesus didn't just come to interrupt your life to call you to more. Jesus came to interrupt your life, interrupt your brokenness, that he might make you whole. And that's the kind of interruption that we shouldn't just desire. We should actually be desperate for that kind of interruption. That's what we should desperately pursue. So let me ask you guys, what stands in our way of that desperate pursuit? Right? We all know we need hope. We all know we need healing, spiritually at the very least, right? So what stands in our way? I'm not just being made physically, but spiritually whole. I'm hoping God's going to answer that question through his word this morning as we look to the story of the woman with the issue of blood. But before we do that, before we dive into the word, would you join me one more time in a word of prayer? Father, we are just so humbled to be here before you. Lord, I'm humbled to be able to preach from your word. I just ask, Lord, that you would speak to us. We are desperate to hear from you. So speak to us through your word, minister to us in the midst of our brokenness, and draw us closer to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, and so if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, you can go ahead and get those out now. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. As you do that, I want to point out that this divine interruption, this story we're going to look at today, is actually an interruption itself. This story comes in the middle of another story. And this doesn't happen a ton in scripture, but when it does, we should really slow down and look at both stories that are happening because it gives us some important context 
as to what's going on. There are some important truths that are going to be revealed about the woman with the issue of blood in the larger story, in the other story that she's going to interrupt. And so what we're going to find here is, before we get to the story of this unnamed woman, is actually the story of a well-respected man. There's already a contrast that you can tell there. But let's see a little bit more as the story begins in Mark 5, beginning with verse 21. Mark tells us that when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Okay, let's pause right there before we get to the interruption, because there is some important context that Mark is going to point us to here in this story. We're still towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, but his popularity is increasing rapidly. He's like just left this shore pretty much, but since he's left the shore, a lot's happened. You guys know, right? He went and he calmed the storm. And then the story we didn't read, he actually goes and heals a demon-possessed man. So people are coming from all over the place to see what this rabbi from Nazareth might do next, right? He's shown his power over nature. He's shown his power over evil. And they're wondering, okay, like what, what else does this guy have to offer? So they all come in droves. And one of those people that comes is a man by the name of Jairus. Only Jairus wasn't hoping just to witness a miracle. He was hoping to receive one himself. All right, it says his little daughter was dying. He was desperate. So what does he do? He goes in pursuit, in desperate pursuit of a divine interruption. And so he makes his way through this crowd, hundreds if not thousands of people. And I'd be willing to bet, if you guys know anything about like first century Jerusalem, Jairus, these synagogue rulers, these rabbis, they're the most well-respected people. I mean, you move out of your way when one of these guys comes walking through. So I'm willing to bet if he's a ways away from Jesus and there's a crowd between them, that crowd probably parts like the Red Sea so that he can get to the front of the line. In those days, maybe not unlike today, it's those with the most power, those with the most money that command the most respect, and he gets to the front of the line where he's able to make that desperate plea. Come, lay your hands on my daughter so that she may live. Meanwhile, there's another person in the crowd who is also come in pursuit of a divine interruption. Only these crowds would have paid this woman no mind. They would not have parted for her. In fact, they probably would have shunned her away because everything Jairus had, she lacked. In fact, the only thing these two had in common was their desperate desire for a divine interruption. We're going to find out why as we continue in Mark 5, verses 25 and 26. He says, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Notice the first thing we learn about this woman. When it comes to Jairus, we learn his name, we learn his position. When it comes to the woman, all we know is her condition. That's all anybody knew her by. It had been 12 years since she had been rejected from the community, since she essentially had her name taken away. Twelve years since she first dealt with this pain. Twelve years since she had first been labeled unclean. 
I can't imagine the physical pain that she must have gone through. But I know that the emotional, spiritual pain that she experienced was much deeper than that. See, because when you were labeled unclean, you were removed. You were separated from your family. You were kicked out of the city. You weren't even allowed to worship in the synagogue. Her life, as she knew it, was over. And it had been over for 12 years. She was unclean. So it's not hard to imagine then that the depth and the duration of her pain would lead to some sort of desperation, right? For her looking for anything and everything that could possibly get her out of this, that could heal her, or maybe even provide just a little bit of comfort. But as we come to find out, nothing is making this better. That's why Mark points out for us that not only was she defined by her condition, but she was confined by her circumstances. She was defined by her condition, but she was also confined by her circumstances. She had spent all that she had. She had seen every doctor, spent her family's fortune, probably wasn't hers, she wasn't able to work, spent her family's fortune, and she had come up empty. She was out of options. There was no miracle, miracle there was no quick fix, nothing. In fact, everything she did only made matters worse. Her condition and her circumstances led to this place of deep desperation which just so happened to be right where she needed to be. I don't know how many of you have been in that place. It's a place none of us want to be, but if you've been there, you probably know it's right where you needed to be. What we see in this woman's life is that's the point where somebody comes and tells her about Jesus. She was exactly where she needed to be. And so somebody tells her about Jesus, and just like that, her hope is revived. It may have been hanging by a thread, but that thread was all she needed. In fact, that thread was what she believed is all it would take. Just that thread in the hem of his garment. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. It says, She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So here's a woman who's not even allowed to be near other people because of her condition, a woman who's been beaten down by her circumstances, and yet she doesn't let any of that keep her from Jesus. She pushes through this crowd, risking shame, risking ridicule, even risking physical punishment, just for the chance to touch the hem of his garment. And I want you to understand like the depth of her desperation here, because I think most of us have heard this story. We sort of know how it ends, and so we think, oh yeah, of course. Why wouldn't she just reach out and touch the hem of his garment? This was a total Hail Mary by this woman. Like, there was no sign that Jesus had ever done this before, that he had ever healed this way. It was just kind of a common superstition in that day. This is all she had, though her hope, like I said, was hanging by a thread. And so she reached out and grabbed hold. And as I was studying that this week, I thought, your doctrine maybe is a little bit off. But I don't think that's the focus of this passage. It's not about the correctness of her doctrine. It's about the object of her faith. She believed that Jesus could heal her condition. So despite her circumstances, she moved and she pushed and she made her way through that crowd to reach out and touch just the hem of his garment. And verse 29 tells us that immediately, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Incredible. What an act of faith. 
Amen. If the story ended there, that'd be a great story, right? A great miracle of Jesus. But this is not the end of the story. This is far, far from it. This woman was about to receive so much more than she even came for. See, her hope had been revived, her health had been restored, but Jesus had more work to do. Remember, the divine interruptions like these are not just meant to break into our lives physically, but more importantly, spiritually, to make us whole. And that was Jesus' plan all along. We could tell that because look at verse 30. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples, the smart guys they are, say, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. See, this woman's condition and her circumstances led her to a desperate pursuit of a cure, of a physical cure. But in order to receive this true spiritual healing that she actually needed, there was one thing that Jesus still desired from her, and it was her confession. Her confession. That's why Jesus asked his disciples, hey, who touched me? When obviously Jesus knew all along. Right? He didn't ask because he wanted to know who she was. He asked because he wanted her to know who he was. Do you guys see the difference there? It kind of reminds me of the scene all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Back when Adam and Eve first eat of the fruit. And they're ashamed and of course they go hide. And what does, Jesus, what does God ask them? He asks them, where are you? He asked them, where are you? Not that he didn't know where they were, but that he, in his grace, wanted to give them the chance to come clean. It says the same thing in the next chapter, in chapter 4, when Cain kills Abel. Goes to him and says, hey, where is your brother Abel? He already knew. In both of those cases, God knew the answer. And in both of those cases, there's a resistance to share the truth. But here, in this story, Mark tells us this woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. The whole truth. Who she was, where she had been, the things she had tried. She told him everything. This raw, unfiltered moment of confession. And what happens next, family, might be the most important teaching moment in the entire life of Christ, maybe in all of Scripture. Because it answers the question for us of what happens when we come in all our sin, our, all our defilement, all our guilt, all of our shame before a holy and righteous God. I want you to pay careful attention to how Jesus responds to this woman. He says, daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't reprimand her. Instead, he responds to her confession with his compassion. He looks at her with love, and the first thing he does is he gives her a name. We may know her as the woman with the issue of blood, but Jesus calls her daughter. This is so much more than a simple title. Don't just take it for that title. This word he uses for daughter, it was gentle, it was intimate. This was a term of endearment. It's a term he uses, guess how many times in all of scripture? One time. He saves it for her. This woman nobody wanted, this woman nobody touched, this woman that had been completely forgotten by her own family. He uses this name to remind her of who she truly is, a beloved child 
of God. But Jesus didn't just come to restore her health or even to remind her of her identity. No, this divine interruption was about even more, so much deeper than that. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. But he's not just speaking to the physical miracle that occurred in her body. He's speaking to the spiritual miracle that had transformed her soul. The physical miracle was just the, the window dressing. It was just the outward reflection of the inward reality. that She had been fully redeemed and fully restored by him. And the same thing happens when Jesus heals today. Because his miracles don't just bless his children here and now, but they awaken us to his presence, to the realities of his kingdom that awaits us in heaven. That's why when miracles happen and we believe that they still do, they always serve a greater purpose. To reveal his glory, to confirm his message, to reveal to us his truth. That's exactly what he speaks to when he tells the woman that her faith has made her well. Because if we look at that word, that word well, the true meaning of that word is about so much more than just health. It's a Greek word there. It's the word sozo, and actually it's used to communicate one who is rescued, one who is kept safe, one who has been made whole. It's often translated as the word saved. So what Jesus is telling this woman is no longer will you live in shame, no longer will you be nameless, no longer will you live with this dreadful disease because you've been made whole. You've been rescued. You've been saved. You have been forgiven. You are my beloved daughter. So if you want to know what happens when your sins and your shame and your defilement are all exposed before a holy God, look no further than right here. His compassion awaits. That's what happens so it's available to us when we allow ourselves to be divinely interrupted by our Savior. All right, let's shift the focus now. Make a little bit of a pivot in our minds. I think to shift the focus in our direction. Because family, this isn't just a phenomenal story, which it is. What the story represents is the spiritual healing that's available to each of us if we, just like this woman, are willing to risk everything to come in that same desperate pursuit of Jesus. And that begins by us being honest about our own condition. See, the reality is that our sin has left us, just like this woman, diseased and unclean. That's our condition. Only she didn't bring her condition on herself. We've done that ourselves with our sin. We've brought it upon ourselves. We are the ones who created the distance between us and between God. And the biggest challenge we face today at least in American Christianity, is that we're often ignorant to our own condition, aren't we? I think if we've got it all on the surface figured out, well, then we could probably just ignore or push away this condition of sinfulness. It's not physical, right? Nobody's, nobody's going to see it, so if we just hide it over here, we'll be all right. It doesn't change the fact that each of us are broken and in need of healing. In fact, that's what drives us to look to our circumstances for our cure. And here again, we see that we're no different than this woman. She went to every doctor, spent every penny that she had looking for something that would make her feel better. In the same way that you and I were willing to go anywhere to try anything in order to find some healing, in order to find some comfort. But just like her, we come to find out that all the cures that the world has to offer, they don't help. Most of the time, they only make things worse. 
And right here is where I could really easily point to things like alcohol or pornography as the things that people turn to in order to numb the pain of their brokenness. But I, I believe there are even good things, there are even healthy things that we can turn to in hopes for a cure. That's why we'll go look into our relationships. Think that if I just find the right guy, if I just find the right girl, then I'll feel whole. If I just get that job, if I just lose that weight, then I'll feel whole. Then I won't feel this pain anymore. And listen, I'm not saying that things like alcohol and pornography aren't spiritual killers. They are. But oftentimes, it's those subtle idols. It's those subtle idols that do the most damage. My life only looked like theirs. My bank account just had a little bit more cushion. Those subtle idols, man, they can deceive us. They can distract us. And they are just as deadly to us. So stop believing that you can find healing just by changing your circumstances. True healing can't begin until you're honest about your condition and the failure of your circumstances to solve for it. I'm going to say that again. True healing can't begin until you're honest about your condition and the failure of your circumstances to solve for it. Let's be honest about the depth of our depravity, the foolish ways that we've tried to address these things on our own. Because the only thing that will lead us to true and total healing is the desperate pursuit of a divine interruption. That's the only thing. It's the recognition that the hope and the healing that we all need is found in Jesus Christ alone. So let me encourage you this morning, family, if you are feeling a bit broken, a bit worn down, if you are feeling that pain, you're in prime position to encounter Jesus today. He doesn't just meet us in our place of need. He lives there. You are in prime position to encounter Jesus today, so don't shy away from your condition or your circumstances. Let those be the very things that move you to draw near to Jesus. Let the desperation for a cure be what drives you to reach out to him in faith. It's exactly what this woman does. Right? Her cure didn't come when she heard about Jesus. Do you notice that? Her cure didn't come when she heard about Jesus. Her cure came when she pursued him and fell at his feet. And yet what we see is there are thousands and thousands of people just like us in churches all around America today that are content just hearing about Jesus. What would have happened to this woman if she was just like, oh, that's cool. I know, I know who Jesus is. I don't think she would have found her healing. People are content just hearing about Jesus, and they wonder why they're never healed. They wonder why they still experience this pain and this brokenness. Because somewhere along the way, they believe the lie that all they had to do was put themselves in the path and never actually pursue Jesus. But I believe we must boldly pursue him. And we must fall at his feet in surrender to be made clean. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer said when he preached on this passage. He said, the miracle comes by pulling on the cloak not by participating in the crowd. The miracle comes by pulling on the cloak, not by participating in the crowd. In other words, family, simply going to church is not enough. Neither is being aware of your condition or even being alert to your circumstances. Those things may lead you to that posture of desperation, and that's good, but you can't stay there. You got to move, right? You got to get up. You got to do something. You got to do something. Jesus is the only one who can make you well. 
I want to be very clear about how Jesus does this. How does he make us well? Because we see this truth so clearly displayed here, and it is a life-changing truth. It tells us that there's only one way to be cured of our uncleanliness, and that is for Jesus to take it on himself. And I want to point out that in these days, right, you have an unclean person. And the idea was that that unclean person touched a clean person, they would make that person unclean. And that makes sense, right? We see this even nowadays with our sickness, right? What happens when someone who is sick comes in close contact with someone who is healthy? They probably make that person sick, right? I want to show you just a quick illustration. I'm going to ask my brother Steve to come on up here. Would you all put your hands together for Steve? So let's say for sake of this illustration that I'm sick and Steve is healthy, okay? Now, what happens if I reach out and touch Steve? Do I get healthy? No. no, right? That's why I don't go to like work and like start like, you know, hugging up on my coworkers, go up to, you know, Pastor Josiah, Pastor Daniel, hoping that their, their wellness may rub off on me, right? Be nice. What happens if I just go and I, I sneeze on Steve? He's sick, right? Does he take that from me? No, now we're just both sick, right? But that's not the case with Jesus. Because when the unclean woman touched Jesus' garment, she was made clean. Put your hands together for Steve. So here's the deal. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Where does the uncleanliness of the woman go? Where does it go? Because in that question lies the answer for our cure. Jesus took it on himself. He carried all the way to the cross. And let me tell you why this is so important. Let me tell you why. What's being illustrated for us here is our salvation. It's our salvation. When we touch Jesus, the guilt and the penalty of our sin, it passes to him. His purity, his wholeness, it passes to us. That's why this woman gets to go home to her family and Jesus is continuing on to the cross. Because he takes our brokenness. He takes our shame and he exchanges it for his wholeness. But in order to receive it, family, we must pursue him. And like this woman, we must be willing to fall at his feet in fear and trembling in this posture of surrender. And just like her, he calls us to make our confession, to share the whole truth. To put it simply, family, he wants us to own our faith to declare our desperation for him, to come clean about the places we've gone or the things that we have tried other than him. Because when we do that, we're able to fully embrace the truth of who we are. Listen, I want you to understand that this story, it's not just like some concept of how, how we can get a miracle from Jesus. This is a blueprint for how we can see our lives transformed. It's a process that begins with our condition, understanding it, understanding our circumstances and the, the failure that they have to heal us, letting that lead us to a place of desperation for a cure. But it's a process that can't be complete until we come to the feet of Jesus with a heartfelt confession. And we push past that fear and that shame to acknowledge our brokenness and to acknowledge the only one who can make us whole. And I know it's sort of easy for us to sort of shake our head at that, like, yeah, that, that sounds right. 
But the truth is, most of us would rather take a detour around confession to get to his compassion, wouldn't we? I know we would, because we see it all the time. We don't want to talk about the things that we've done. I'm just going to go straight to, straight to your grace. We're just going to forget that that ever happened. And he will, but we've got to confess it. You can't just go straight to the good part. Because when we take that detour, when we avoid sharing the whole truth, we miss out on the full beauty of God's grace. We miss out. You're not avoiding wrath or punishment. You're leaving behind God's grace. By trying to avoid guilt and shame, we miss out on the full measure of God's grace. Romans 5.20 tells us that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. God's grace can never be overwhelmed by our sinfulness. Pastor Dane Ortland says in his book, Gentle and Lowly, the sins of those who belong to God, they open the floodgates of his compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. So rather than avoiding confession at all costs, family, rather than believing it's our sin that actually repels God, what if we shifted our perspective to align with God's word and believed that it's our unloveliness that's the very thing that draws him closer to us? I think we'd be a little more willing to confess of our sins, wouldn't we? What if we believed that we actually drew closer to Jesus every time we confessed and put us in position to receive the full gift of his compassion? That's why Jesus calls this woman back. That's why Jesus calls this woman back. He didn't want her sneaking off like a beggar. He wanted her leaving knowing that she was his daughter. And the same thing is true for you here today. Because you may not feel important. You may think that Jesus has better things to do. But that's not true. Just like he did with this woman, he will stop everything to remind you of who you are. To remind you that you're no longer defined by your condition. You're no longer confined by your circumstances. Because he has come so that you might be made well. That you might be rescued, forgiven, saved, made whole. You're not what you did. You're not what you've gone through. You're not the things that you have been told. You are a beloved son and a beloved daughter. So all those sins, all those lies, all those hurts, all of that brokenness, let that open up the floodgates of his compassion for you. Receive it this morning. Not like a beggar, but like a son and like a daughter. Listen, if you've yet to receive Christ's compassion, you don't have to wait. You need to be like that woman. I don't care if you interrupt my sermon right now. I'm serious. I don't care what it takes for you. Find a pastor. Find a life group leader. Find anybody. Tell them. Get prayer. I don't know what reaching out and touching his garment looks like for you. All I know is that's what's standing between you and receiving his compassion this morning. Whatever it is, don't leave here like a beggar this morning. Come and confess and receive his compassion. For the rest of us, how do we respond to such great grace? I'm going to touch on that as I invite the band back up. If you're here this morning and you've already received Jesus, if you know his compassion, you know his grace and his mercy, that means you have one job this morning. One job. It's to clear a path. 
Don't be like this crowd who turned a blind eye to this woman. Instead, go in pursuit of people like her. Be like that unnamed person who told her about Jesus and revived her hope. And don't stop there. Because we're not just called to proclaim the good news, right? We're called to put that on display so that others can see it. So get uncomfortable. So the reality is the people in this crowd, they didn't like that she was there. Probably frustrated by it. Some of them might have even been angry. And as brutal as that might sound, there are still people even today in churches all across America who don't want to mix in with the marginalized. But here's what I want you to know. You're either participating in ministry with Jesus or you're keeping people from it. There's no middle ground there. So be willing to get uncomfortable, to clear a path for those who are in desperate need of Jesus. And let's be a church where the sick and the well are both pressing into Jesus side by side, no matter our station in life. Imagine, just for a moment, how much more comfortable people would be if they saw our churches as places where real confession happened. Not where we just came to put on our Sunday best and put on that facade. Imagine what would happen if we got uncomfortable. Leads me to the last point, which is to lead by example. Lead by example. The best way for us to draw others to Jesus is to be willing to come to him repeatedly, broken ourselves. See, the truth is there are people all around you who are suffering silently. And by you coming with open hands in a posture of confession, sharing, being held accountable, you are giving courage to those who need it. So go in pursuit of others. Get uncomfortable. Lead by example. And I believe we will see unprecedented things happen, not just here at Awaken, but all throughout this city. I think this passage makes one thing clear, that we are all in desperate need of Jesus question for you to sit on is how will you respond?